0: Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back yet again to the Aviation Avenue podcast. Folks, I'm very happy to be back with you recording another episode of our wonderful, of our podcast. So, folks, uh, not really much to say. Um, i just been kind of low-key relaxing this weekend. I was tired and busy pretty much all week of last week. So, everybody, um, today we will be discussing the Messerschmitt ME-262. Which was which was the world's first operational jet during World War II. So, folks, we are going to let our guest Fred Bell, who was who has not been in the, on the show for a while, actually, uh, he's going to be returning to discuss this wonderful aircraft. And everybody, will talk to you guys on the back end. Hope you enjoy. So yeah, so it's a cool aircraft. Hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to another
1: edition of Warbird Wednesday. My name is Fred Bell, the vice chairman of the Palm Springs Air Museum. And we are back in the B-17 hangar today to talk about some of our German aircraft exhibit. And today we're going to get into one of the most famous German aircraft and a combat aircraft at the end of World War II. And that is the Messerschmitt, the ME-262. But first, my onophile assistant, Greg Kenny has gone back to theming today. Obviously, now, this is not quite the correct time period, maybe about 20 years too early in the old helmet here. But, of course, the uh, German Spike helmet, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, toss this off camera and not try to break Greg's uh, arm or anything else when I toss it. I actually had a little bit of mass to it, Greg. So we're talking about the ME-262. Now, the ME-262 uh, was, the Germans were playing around with it pre-war. Uh, here's a planned view of the airplane. I'm going to talk about it in depth. Uh, they were messing around with it pre-war, and the idea was both the British and the Germans, and to some extent the Americans, were in a headlong race to try to figure out how to develop a turbojet engine and something that didn't have propellers. They did not understand compressibility and the issues with the sound barrier. Uh, They were learning as they went. They were going out and breaking airplanes and unfortunately killing people at times in a quest for faster and faster airplanes. But they were all going forward trying to come up with a superior combat aircraft that was very fast. They understood the sound barrier issues but they only understood that for some reason they couldn't get through it, and they were having problems with control lock and and other issues with the aircraft. So the project started uh, as uh, Project 1065, and the idea was to come up with a turbojet-powered airplane. Junkers and uh, BMW both played with engines for this aircraft. Uh, Initially, the design had the the engines actually in the fuselage, they figured out pretty quickly they didn't want to do that, and that was uh, primarily driven, Greg, by metallurgy issues. They didn't have uh, metal that could deal with the high heat in these engines, and they are having all kinds of service problems. So what they initially did is they uh, took the aircraft and they moved the the design and they moved the engines out into the pods. Now, you can see on this aircraft, it ha- aircraft, it has a slightly... Uh, a rake to it the reality in the early aircraft was this was a tail dragger and it had a the early designs had a straight wing what they ended up doing is they wanted to come up with a tricycle landing gear for the airplane which means they had center of gravity issues so the sweep some people think that the sweep was uh due to uh sonic issues and trying to get the aircraft faster and faster the reality was the reason this has a slight swept wing to it was it moves the engines back and deals with the center of gravity on the airplane as they put the airplane up on its nose wheel. It also solved for the Germans the issue of having to swap these engines out. They had very, very, Junkers primarily went with the engine design when the aircraft went into combat, and these aircraft had very, very low time uh, uh, run rates on them as low as you know you might get 50 hours out of them lower than that and they would have to to change them out. They were incredibly dangerous and we're going to talk about that. Now the other thing about the aircraft is its size. Greg has a picture of me where I was actually looking at purchasing a an ME 262 replica for this museum. I actually got to sit in one of those and one of the things that strikes you about the airplane is how big this airplane is. To me, it felt slightly smaller than a B-25. It was that big. And uh, the other thing was that amazed me when I was in the cockpit is how small. The aircraft was built for a very small pilot uh, in the aircraft I was in, and maybe there's a way to change the geometry inside, but my head was right up against the, the canopy when it closed. So you're talking about a guy that's about 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, which is, if you look at uniforms from the times, men were smaller then. They were just a little smaller, so it makes sense that the pilot uh, w- was a little smaller. Now, the airplane first flew with propeller engines in 1941. It flew in 1942 with jet engines as they were testing it. It was introduced in April of 1944, uh, and it ran all the way out, and it Ended service with the Germans. A Fred fun fact, Greg, and that is that the Czechs flew a version of the 262 till 1951. If you can believe that, that is really interesting. Can you imagine getting a hold of one of those? But uh, but those uh, a few of those airframes went on uh, with the Czechs until 1951. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. The design derivative on the airplane was it was designed into the two-seat. The aircraft that it had an influence on were the Sequoia, the Su-9. It had an influence on the Japanese and Nakajima, the Kika. It also, in the American design, had uh, influence on the F-86 and the B-47, the Stratojet. Now, one thing to realize with this aircraft is they brought them back. We talked about the Germans at the end of the war and the need to get a hold of their technology, and the Americans were scooping up technology all over Europe, they did bring back and evaluate a, a whole bunch of German jet fighters. And they radiated out into museums since then. We'll talk about a little bit about that later. But the, when they tested the 262 against the P-80, and this is a, which is an American fighter, a standard American fighter. They found that it was superior in acceleration, speed, um, and climb performance, that the airplane was either superior to or equal to the P-80. So think about that for a second. Very poor power plants. Uh, and, and the jet engine design, as I said, was terrible. The German metallurgy at the time, as the war went on, kept getting much you know, poorer, worse every year. There was a reason for that. They were getting bombed day and night, and I'm actually standing in front of one of the 262's primary adversaries, a B-17G, and also a Flak 38. So we've got all kinds of interesting relics in here. But the, um, the metallurgy declined over time because they were having real problems with resources. Another thing was that the these aircraft and a lot of these German weapons were being built in essentially concentration camp or slave labor camps by conscripted workers into those camps nasty conditions terrible terrible thing the a lot of you hear a lot of the conscripts doing everything they could think of to sabotage the, the what they were working on so that it wouldn't work so the quality of german production just continued to fall but you have to remember this jet rolled out and let's say it made it to a squadron. A lot of these aircraft late in the war, whether it were German or Japanese, they may have 10 hours before they were getting destroyed. And the the Axis knew this, so there wasn't a lot of paint. There was no undercoating. There was no worry about what was going on. It was get it out, get it in the air. Hopefully, it would inflict some losses on the Allies. But the lifespan of any of this equipment late war was very, very low, especially as the Allies and as the Americans in particular got massive air superiority. So, a good visibility aircraft, people think uh, that uh, you would dogfight with this airplane. That is not the case uh, with any of these uh, turbojet engines. They did not um, spool up well. They did not spool up well as all, at all. In other words, they didn't uh, accelerate well. So the German pilots would get the airplane up to speed at altitude. We were jumped by an ME-262 and only got a, sh- a very short glimpse of him because he made a, an attack from uh, about 3 o'clock high. And he came down through the group and he went by so fast we couldn't hardly see him. <laughs> It was really a shock because it was like nothing we'd seen before. They would essentially make gun runs. You had four 30 millimeter cannons, and there was some other armament in the front of these airplanes. Some and some real heavy armament. Greg can find it. Uh, the Germans did all kinds of things with this airplane, and they would make gun runs at the American bombers. They would try not to mix it up because depending on where they were in the flight envelope, they could be about 100 miles an hour, 75 to 100 miles an hour faster than the P-51s or anything that was chasing them. And again, depending on the attitude of the airplane, that's going to vary. But they, um, they would make gun runs, then they would break. They didn't have tremendous range because they used a lot of fuel, and they'd come in to land. What the Allies learned to do was they would find out where these aircraft were flying out of and they would set up combat air patrols to catch these guys when they were coming into land, because when are you most vulnerable? You're either taking off or landing, and the uh, P-51s or P-47s or whatever was around there would pounce on these airplanes as they were coming into land, and uh, the Germans had horrendous combat losses. The Allies, as they went down on the deck to go after these airplanes, had also just a ton of losses, because the Germans put up all kinds uh, we're talking about Flak 38 short-range short uh, anti-aircraft artillery. Uh, we have an 88 out front, but uh, Germans put up all kinds of anti-aircraft uh, artillery around these bases to try to protect them. And so if you were trying to go after 262s as an American uh, fighter, you, you ran the risk that you were going to get shot down close to the base. Now, the thing about the 262, and I've been really lucky, is like Bob Friend and a couple of Tuskegees that I've been able to uh, associate with over over my lifespan here uh, actually flew against these. And so the what I just talked to you about, gun runs, is absolutely true. And The Germans would not mix it up as a rule with the uh, Allied fighters. One, because the guys that were flying these were were aces. They were top pilots in for the most part, some of the pilots laid in the war were just thrown into airplanes. But uh, they knew how rare these airplanes were, and they were trying to husband their resources and get back. And what they were after was these big bombers. The last thing they wanted to do is get shot down, uh, mixing it up with a bunch of P-51s or, or P-47s. So the, uh, the designers on this aircraft, and uh, we've talked about German design. I'm going to talk about these guys. Uh, here, and they're going to be part of my salute. I'm going to go ahead and, and put this down. And today, the guys that designed the 262, and there were other people, but Will uh, Walden Voigt, Robert Lusser, and Ludwig Boykow. If I screwed up their names, I apologize. But uh, as I said, and, and I talked about a little bit with the JU388, uh, German designers were absolutely amazing in what they did they were the german war machine was horrible and what they did to people was terrible but a lot of the technology as we talked about in comparison to the p80 uh was a lot of that went into subsequent american designs and where did that fight in that went into the cold war So we got very lucky that we were able to get a hold of some of this technology and actually reverse engineer uh, into these other fighters. What I want to talk about is all of those early American jet pilots, those P-80, F-86, F-84, those guys were right out on the ragged edge of this technology that that flew in in sometimes miserable circumstances. And with the P-80 and some of the early fighters, especially in Korea, we've talked about the MiG-15, They were up against a superior airframe, and they continued to prevail. So if you were an early jet pilot in the American Air Force, I want to salute you. And today, I would be remiss, as as, uh, Greg has also gone down, I'm not really sure if this is German, this is Lurch Birch. The bark is better than the bite. Hmm. I actually noticed there is some sodium in this, Greg, which... uh, and a little bit of carbs. You're not just loading me up on sugar. You'll be in a lurch if you run out of birch. Whoever they paid that marketing thing, that's pretty good there. Um, And this is, I'm not even going to read this. Just look at at the, the label, it's pretty funny. Greg, that is quite pleasurable to the palate. You actually gave me something that I might actually enjoy taking another sip of. I will do that. That is actually really good, Greg. That's a home run. You actually uh, gave me something. I may have another sip of that when I'm done. My family won't like that. But the, um, now when we're talking about the 262, uh, there actually was a version in the HG series. In fact, the HG-3 series was transonic. So if the Germans had been able to continue to develop the airplane, there is no question that at some point they would have been able to push through the sound barrier uh, with those aircraft in, let's say, the 1945 to 1950 time frame. We are extremely lucky that we defeated the Germans because these were very dangerous, serious weapons. Uh, the comparable aircraft to this would be the Gloucester Meteor. The Allies, and the British especially at that time, were working very hard in uh, aerospace to, to stay with the Germans, and, and we would have ultimately prevailed. But an aircraft like this in any real numbers, and if it had been employed, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, if it had been employed properly in a... In a combat model it would have been very very dangerous now the the one thing that was the downfall to this aircraft was that hitler insisted that this be turned into a fighter bomber and that held up production as the the designers tried to figure out how to strap bombs to this the aircraft would have uh, premiered much earlier than april of 1944 had Hitler not interfered with production. So when I talk about the fact that history intervened, so to speak, uh, and the leadership, the German leadership at that time, the the B-17s, like the one behind me, were bombing the crap out of the Germans. That is a technical term. And they were not happy about it, and they were launching V-2s and V-1s and anything they could do to strike back. And Hitler had wanted to turn this aircraft into a fighter bomber. Huge mistake. Huge mistake. It kept the uh, this aircraft from being produced in larger numbers and introduced earlier. Uh, it, um, it would not have affected the outcome of the war. The Allied production effort was such that there was no way the Germans would have uh, been able to prevail. But the losses, the Allied losses, which the 8th Air Force and the Allied airmen losses over Germany would have been much higher, and they were already too high, but they would have been higher. Now, the the airplane went on after 1945, which is interesting in that it was flown by the Czechs up until 1951. That's a Fred Fun fact there, Greg. Right? The Czechs flew it. They flew uh, 13 of those, I'm sorry, 12 of those airplanes, both in a combat role and in a reconnaissance role. And then they were replaced uh, early in 1951, I think, by MiGs. I think the MiGs replaced them. But if you can believe that, that, to me, is amazing that somewhere around there in the early 1950s, there were still these airplanes. I do not know, and I'm actually intrigued by this whole thing. I'm going to do a little bit more research to find out how they dealt with the the engines, because the engines and that metallurgy issue were a huge problem with this airplane. Maybe they had leftover engines from the Germans and they just used them until they ran out. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out. Now, I talked to you about that aircraft that I was able to sit in. It was a replica. Uh, there are replica 262s flying, both single seat and the trainer, the two seat version. They use a, a GE, a CJ610 engine. What is the legacy of this airplane? It brought in the modern jet age. Um, Unfortunately, uh, it was used, and this technology and the advancement was uh, used for nefarious purposes. But uh, it was a leap forward in technology to the jets that we all have now. Now, one other Fred fun fact, Greg, is my son actually built this and donated this to the museum. So this aircraft was donated to the museum by my kid. So uh, if it doesn't look right, I'm going to blame him. But, uh, but it actually, he did a, did a nice job putting it together and finishing it out and everything. So uh, we're lucky there. Now, if you want to have all of these cool World War II airplanes, you can reach out to Jason in the link and get one of these cool World War II puzzles. It is suitable for framing. It has the 262 it has russian airplanes in there japanese American. it's got it all in there as i said it is suitable for framing so this is something you can get hours of enjoyment out of building it and then you can can get it like covered which i've seen done and and put it in a frame it's it's a great print so reach out to jason to do that we cannot do the work that we do here including the work on this big beautiful airplane without your donations Please uh, hit the donation link. We can certainly use your help. Uh, if you're seeing this on YouTube, we hope we earned your subscription today. Please click the subscribe button and tickle that little bell so you know uh, when we are going to put up our videos you can on our channel there. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook. My name is Fred Bell. I am the vice chairman of the Palm Springs Air Museum. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
0: everybody uh hope you guys enjoyed that sorry there was if there was a video of it taking off but there was no sound it was just like linked to like German music <laughs> sorry about that so everybody i hope you guys enjoyed the episode on the measurement me 262 uh we hope you guys enjoyed it and we will see you guys next time here on the here on the aviation avenue podcast so long for now everyone